All right. Uh, welcome to this episode of the Double MacGuffin podcast with Henry Griffin and Jonathan Freilich. We are two good friends who've been talking about movies for a while. And we finally got into a groove where we decided to get together and watch a double feature, hence the name Double MacGuffin. So it, um, uh, twice now we've picked a movie, each of us has picked a movie for the other one, and we've united them by a general theme. Last time we got together to talk about movies that we were driven to by a recent experience of the coronavirus pandemic. So I picked Safe, which is, you know, about essentially about quarantine, oneself for safety, and you put uh, Silent Running, which was sort of about the uh, preservation of life in the face of sort of a uh, dystopian future. And at the end, I said, well, listen, next time we got to pick the opposite of that, like a true comfort movie for you. Uh, and before I say what movies we chose, I got to tell you, you know, in our culture, there's a lot of this going around. I love this podcast on the New York Times called Still Processing, where two culture critics, Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham, just did a whole podcast, a 90-minute podcast, where they essentially live podcasted the Halle Berry Catwoman movie, which is not a particularly distinguished motion picture. But essentially what they needed was something where they could really just get lost in the style of it and then think about the choices and then methods of interpretation because what's there is not inherently a movie. About, oh, I, I never like to talk trash about it filmmaker because it's so hard but uh, it's not a film of distinguished content or virtue on its own uh, but you could sort of decide some other reason and then you know uh Guillermo del Toro is on Twitter at asking everybody what they're watching and some filmmakers are you know watching I don't know uh, Roy Anderson or Shohei Imamura but uh, I'm not watching as many movies as I used to probably because of family child care issues but what I'm watching is better like my criterion channel use has gone way up yeah i don't know if that's the case for you yeah. but there's sort of the criterion channel membership because it's generally the best way to do it is to annually it's a little bit like a gym membership yeah where you feel that by paying for it you're already getting the value of it mm -hmm. uh, but you actually have to go to the gym and so uh, a lot of people keep it around but don't watch it that much but lately i really feel like uh uh it's a very safe space for me <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think they guarantee that you're getting the most cinematic bang for per minute for your buck on screen. Well, there's that, but like, you know, a, you know, three or four weeks ago, like everybody else in the world, I fell down to in, like into the rabbit hole of this documentary called Tiger King, which uh, was a little bit like, it was just like eating an entire tube of cookie dough. You just felt yeah. awful afterwards. Uh, and I just thought, well, what if I get the virus now? And, I, and the last thing I watched was the title. <laughs> so now I feel like my reliance on the Criterion Channel is a sort of what your parents would call wearing clean underwear. Yeah. Well, except I'm, I'm wondering now, like, is, is, you know, there's the problem of, oh, my God, I went out and, and the last thing I saw was Bergman. And now I have to deal with asphyxiation. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, could you repeat that? I missed it. That the last thing you saw was what? But now you have the, the problem, which is it could be like, well, the last thing I saw was Bergman, and now I have to go deal with asphyxiation removed from everybody, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. but in other words, so, so last week we did kind of on the nose, like, well, let's just face this head on. And now we decided to turn our back to it. But we both picked a, a, a really odd, nobody else would pick these particular movies as comfort food except for you and me. So, <laughs> yeah, first, so first we're going to start with your movie, 
or which is uh, I won't uh, I won't attempt the French title, but Catherine Brayout's The Last Mistress. Could yeah. you set this movie up? Could you tell us uh, what it's about and why you picked it? Okay, The Last Mistress sort of hinges on uh, a um, a a guy who is not an aristocrat but is hanging around aristocrats but he, he principally he's ha he has a mistress but he is set up at the beginning that he's going to uh marry this other woman and he's about to ditch the mistress but of course he is and um and essentially he he does get married but but there's a scandal because he has a mistress basically he has this this there's this longtime mistress and it's this, and scandal is moving into high society and and in France where they are and um, but nonetheless they're sort of you know the socially advanced uh, uh, grandmother of the woman that he's going to marry decides you know she's a, she's a little bit you know liberated and insists that he tell the story of the, of his relationship with the mistress in order to calm her down and uh, and um, and 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 sort of reassure that it's okay that, that he's going to marry her granddaughter uh, who's a very um, sort of uh, somewhat priggish, reserved woman, and uh, which is odd because he's a complete libertine or has been. And uh, he describes an incredibly tumultuous affair with uh, with the woman played by Asia Argento, who's called uh, 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 Lavillain and uh, Lavellini, Lavellini, and uh, so he does marry Hermengard eventually has has a has a she has a baby with him and they move to this castle where the last mistress does show up even though he's supposed to have ditched her and he can't uh, prevent himself from continuing the affair and uh, i will leave it there but there you go that's the that's the gist that's the basic plot gist of this. right so this is it takes place in like the 1830s but it says very sort of right at the right across the bow that it's in the century of Lacklos, Trotolos de Lacklos, right? Who's the guy who wrote La Liaison Dangereuse. Right. Which, you know, every every bit of like uh, background I found on this movie always mentioned, you know, Lacklos died like 45 years before, you know, in, that the what we associate with uh, Lacklos is, you know, um, pre-revolutionary France. Yeah. And so that's why I think the grandmother is so interesting because she's really about the age of some of those liaisons, yeah. <laughs> you know, some of those characters in Liaison Dangereuse, where yeah. she's like survived all that and now, as an elderly person, wants to hear, uh, the, you know, the wildly passionate stories of, uh, you know, a, a Frenchman who has a stronger emotional connection with the person he will not marry than the person he has to marry. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, um, very, very good approach. I'm going to say you picked this movie because of your natural affiliation towards libertinism, right? <laughs> You're absolutely somebody who's, who uh, exalted uh, the, the flouting of public and private morals. So there's that. That makes you comfortable. And then also you love the work of Catherine Brayout. Could you talk about her for a second? She's made a dozen or so films, and this one is in some ways – different than the other ones. Can you talk about her as a filmmaker? Uh, Catherine Bayard is very, um, she's, uh, a, a, she says very profound things about a lot of things in the world. She started, she started, I mean, her first thing that she ever did was banned, basically, which when she was 18, and then, uh, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a certain diary. So she was already 
a, a controversial figure by the time she was a teenage girl, uh, primarily for writing about being a teenage girl. And then, um, and then of course, there were, they attempted to make a movie about it that was also banned. And then she's basically run a lot of controversial movies that basically hinge around either themes of uh, what it, it, yeah, teenage being uh, of the experience of being an adolescent or um, the hypocrisies of sexuality in, in society. I mean, that's really why I like it. It's less the libertinism as, 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 the, as, the, as the libertinism is already a, a word that, that, that essentially has the, and I think this movie is about that. It, it has it, imbued in it the position of hypocrisy that society has. In other words, it's outing people for doing things in society that society considers not done, even though everybody's doing it all the time. So, right. you know, so, so in other words, and she's a great commentator on the hypocrisy and it's shown up in her own life. So she's had to confront it directly. The and most interesting thing about the position of this movie in her life is that she had a stroke in 2004 this movie is 2007 and you can watch her and in interview all over the internet. She's very powerful being interviewed. She speaks in very grand statements that you want to find that you find very inspiring. Anyway, she's that kind of person, but, but she, uh, she's bold and, and she came back and she came back stronger. I think she's even had health problems then, and she, but this was the first movie after she came back, uh, you know, after, after her stroke. So, so why did you pick this movie instead of uh, one of her other ones? This is not one of her, this is not one of her signature movies. Why did you pick this one? Well, for the reason that you said, like in, in terms of our thematic thing, it was like something that was really far away from, from anything that we were involved in. Here, the, what are the, the conditions that we're in? This is something that has no bearing on anything, that, on the sort of life that we find ourselves in all over the world now with, with you know, lockdowns and everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's loaded with intimacies and bodily intimacies and all kinds of stuff that right. we are not, <laughs> this is, you know, you know, a lot of, it's not, we're not living in a very, you know, sort of, you know, corporally, uh, corporeally. Um, no, there's know, a lot of people rubbing right together in this movie. That's right. Yeah, that's, and also it's from another time period. And, uh, and um, you know, so the, I thought that when you picked that, when you picked that theme, I thought, well, this, this is a good one. You know, it's right. kind of like not it's even like a, It's like a, a, a honestly, because you're, you're also a very British person. It's like a very kinky masterpiece theater type deal. I suppose, yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, she has the, her differences. I mean, I think her differences with, with these with these kind of movies to the kind that you would normally think is that they're more complicated by the fact that the women are in a position of being aggressive, uh, of being very aggressive and very in control of situations and uh, sexual situations, which is masterfully turned around from what the what the usual. Uh, plot of these kind of movies in that kind of time period would be so you know it has i mean it definitely has a kind of um uh a female gaze to it also the guy who plays um oh Marini, which is of course a very new orleans name. Yeah. yeah so he's you know he's not someone who's uh I don't mean to be rude and I don't know much about his career in France, but he's not a noted actor. He was I think a model who became an actor. He's somebody that I think is uh easy on the eyes. Yeah, well, she picks a lot of people like that. I mean, let's face it, it's Aggie Argento. Who doesn't want to watch her on a film looking like that? You know? It is true, but, you know, I remember when Keanu Reeves was cast in the film of Dangerous Liaisons because he was a kind of not known for his acting either. It was Rihanna right. Kipai. And so I think that um, I think that he's the uh, he's the object, you know what I mean? That this yeah. is really a story about, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
infidelity, so to speak. And so he's the he's he's sort of got the woman's part, so so to speak. But um, I had to say the the thing I had to say is that she's the last mistress because they've been having an affair for like ten years. Is that true? Yeah, or longer, exactly. I mean, I'm not really sure. It's like beyond. I mean, that's that's why I'm not sure it's particularly beyond. Go ahead. That's all you finish. Sorry. But there's a great story about. Um, do you know this story about our former governor Edwin Edwards, the governor of Louisiana, who was, uh, you know, uh, really notorious philanderer? He was quoted as yeah. saying, well, "You're only as old as the woman you feel." And uh, he was the governor of Louisiana when Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. And so, 1992, when Bill Clinton was running for president, he met Edwin. They were neighboring governors in the South, and said. Edwin, I have a problem. There's this woman named Jennifer Flowers who's um, telling people we had a torrid 12-year affair, and I, I don't know what to say. And Edwin Edwards allegedly said, well, I'd say um, that you can have a torrid 12-week affair or perhaps a torrid 12-month affair, but there's no way you could have a torrid 12-year <laughs> And the story ends by Bill Clinton saying, Edwin, I can't say that. And Edwin Edwards says, yes, I know, but I could. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's really wonderful how this woman who, um, you know, that um, uh, unlike, uh, you know, conventional American stories about these cultural mores, you know, uh, the mistress is not someone who wants to be the wife. She wants to be this person. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, she's and she's worked herself in her own way into into being supported by a, a sort of a, a, some other aristocratic guy, who uh, who can't get control of her, and then uh, you know also having to deal with suffering the uh, the embarrassment of her behaviors in in you know upper class France. But I, I think I, I think there is something a little bit more touching than just about infidelities, in as much as it's hard to tell who is being untrue to whom and what is and the question. The question of course is it's, it's like really made clear that he, which is why the old lady, the grandmother that has to listen to his story is totally moved by it. I mean, that, that incredible posture that she's in when it, you know, when it breaks the break of day, <laughs> you're like, this is really funny. I mean, you know, this is getting the story, but I just mean in as much as the, the idea is that, is it um, relationships there's no way to negate the depth of relationships just because you put on particular social airs. In other words, those things, you know, there's a very nice little idea there that I think people that, that our society tries to have a pretense of that was my past. This is my present. And right. it tries to put that in terms of human relationship as though we're in control of them. And usually we're not in any kind of way of we, if we attempt it, then we do a gross, a grossly aggressive, maneuver so either way it, it kind of gets a, it, it approaches some kind of discussion of that which i kind of like but also just like the general hypocrisy and gossipiness of, of things which i always love i always love to see you know a send-up of those kind of people and gossip <laughs> well you know it reminds me and um you know one of my favorite movies is uh scorsese's age of innocence uh-huh right which is a you know very pg version of this type of thing about you know where yeah. daniel day lewis plays this kind of you know, kind of a raging bull kind of character who has these like raging emotions that are completely inappropriate because he's on the wrong, he's on the non-lacklose end of the 19th century. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Where you're really not allowed to. And so all he wants to do is like take Michelle Pfeiffer's glove off. Uh, but he uh, has to be in this other relationship too. Um, but you, 
you know, stylistically speaking, like this is not an over-the-top movie in the way that like, I know you're a fan of Fellini's Casanova. We're both fans of Ken Russell. Who are, it, it has smatterings of Ken Russell, definitely. Like we, we I mean, I have to admit that for our for our listeners at home, Asia Argento's character spends a lot of the movie with this sort of uh, double forelock, the, these, these two little strands of hair that are woven on her forehead to look like an ass. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a butt on her forehead the whole time. I was like, okay. Are you okay? All right. Is anybody else watching this? <laughs> so I was like, okay, this movie knows what it is. And then, you know, I, I, uh, I just scribbled down all these little lines of dialogue. And of course, you translate it. My French is uh, non-existent. But uh, what did you pull out? What did I pull out? Um, well, there's one that's like it's so lackluster. This marriage will be my masterpiece. That's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, the ocean of perfidy that is men's hearts, right? Um, or what is it? Uh, somebody said to ha- to be incapable of the slightest stratagem. And then um, I wish I could remember what somebody was saying. I really should have attributed these. Where somebody was, um, after being with somebody so basic, would be attracted by the scent of an alkali. You could really taste what, uh, you know, Salieri is eating those nipples of Venus. And oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Just, that's what it's like. Like it was, that it was um, human manipulation. You know, but it's interesting that like it says something about I'm not going to weigh too everyone you as a viewer, but we're about to talk about me as a viewer. That this was your idea of candy. That you know, um, yeah. What, make, what do you think it is that makes you like a movie like this? Um, like I said, I mean, I I I find it, you know, uh, I I I like things that suggest that we have freedoms or the things that are inhibiting our freedoms or that are being declared an inhibition of natural freedoms. I I like movies to criticize those. They make me feel better for just the natural ways that I am. I don't, you know, I mean, there is that. And then I also like things that explore things that people generally repress from conversation in extraordinarily candid ways. And I enjoy, and yes, and I enjoy hypersexually sexually attractive people like you know like Asia Argento is presented in the movie that's I mean there's eye candy about it but you know I mean it, it has a lot of ironies too I mean you know that the whole turnaround with the, the with the you know when they have the duel right <laughs> incredible you know. I mean, yeah that's something you don't you really don't get a lot of those any you know Barry Lyndon or other movies like that it's just at the centerpiece yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think this is why I why I liked it that why I like that kind of movie. And I, you know, I got I I like Catherine Bell. I think I think she's a, you know she's a pretty heavy director and 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 has yeah. done some and has really you know really challenges some stuff that you know on a on a, on a basic level and isn't afraid of it. And she cut you know she she's interesting. She teaches law to her cinema. That's her position. I mean, it's like it's like getting taught that by you know. I don't know by any of the others, but you know her, her uh, you know, and uh, I don't know. I, I like that stuff. You know, it just it's, it sort of has a, has a kind of beat. It, it has a certain kind of meat to it. You know, without being in it. And so, and listen, we can't move on until I ask you the question I always ask you, which is about the music in the movie. Tell me about it. Oh, not that interesting. 
I mean, you know, I, I think in both these movies, I was thinking about it in both the movies that we selected. The music is not particularly a highlight. I think it's, you know, it's of... Uh, for me, it wasn't, these aren't, well, it was I, the overreaching. What did you think? Well, I guess, I'll, I mean, I can talk about the music in my movie coming up because you think we both of us picked movies by... Uh, directors who have a lot of opinions about every stage of the process yeah. so did she go for a sort of standard uh you know score period score in a way that sort of makes it feel like what she's aiming at in her own way or was it just you know do you feel like the music was that it was a missed opportunity what did you notice uh no i think it was i think it was well placed i mean i think basically you know if you're going to take a standard drawing it's, it's not something that normally has a standard sort of um format in which we're going to expect a certain kind of thing out of a, yeah. out of a period piece like that but you're going to do something that is completely subversive in the middle of it then it might be a good idea to really not go to, you, you 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 wanted to fulfill the obligations of having many of the scene the of the standard scene things there right you know, you don't want that. In other words, like I, I think if it had been too much of a of a score that was outside of what of what the uh, conventions of that kind of film are, that 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 would have uh, set up. Uh, it just would have set it up wrong. I mean, I'm just sort of, well, uh, and you know, the other thing that's different, I think, about this than many of her other films is that it was a significantly higher budget. And so, yeah. you think once you start making movies in the, you know. Uh, I'm going to say over ten million dollars. Oh, I don't really know. You, you know, all of a sudden you're you're really playing with somebody else's money and multi there's different companies that you think did somebody want a score that they could sell the movie with and were they making the trailer to make the movie? Do you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah. we need, you know, if she'd said, listen, I want to use a heavy metal score or like the way Sophia Coppola had a completely uh, bizarrely non-diegetic uh, use of source music in Marie Antoinette where it's like, huh? Like you're not, because then it was absolutely going to take you out of it. Okay, that's aggressive. Where I think this movie is aggressive properly in its content because it's yeah. sort of showing you a world in which people treated each other in an entirely different way than we do now. Yeah, particularly now that uh, no one's allowed to touch each other anymore, ever. Yes, it's great, exactly. And that <laughs> that was it, you know. And I thought that uh, yeah, I guess in a way I'm thinking about people. Like, how do you direct people's attention towards something that, that you know they're not normally going to come across? I mean, like I said, people are watching the Tiger King right now. You know, with, yeah. yeah pretty rough running into as you said and, and you know and man and many of us feel bad afterwards because you're yeah. like <laughs> i really felt i had to because i had to watch it before everybody told me it was about and then you zoom through it and you're like gee i really spent seven hours on that yeah you, you for seven seven hours you could have watched my movie twice yeah it's funny because i was i was on grant morris's show the talk show the other day again and uh what's wonderful thing it's new orleans show but it was sort of the zoom version and, and uh and um, it started off with the sort of feeling of disgust that he, that that the watching of the Tiger King had gone on, you know. But I, I haven't, I couldn't share the, share share that one because I haven't paid attention to it at all. But I noticed this is a, this is a normal thing: is people discussing their, you know. Their I think I, I think you can countering with the phenomenon of the Tiger King. You don't have to watch Tiger King until we've achieved herd immunity. It's <laughs> <laughs> <was> perfect. <laughs> so. Um, so I have to tell you about the movie I chose because yeah, we, we must I, I, I sort of had a snap idea about what kind of movies we should pick and then very quickly came up with my answer. So I chose a film uh, for, 
uh, from Italy by Ermano Olmi called The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Now, this is a movie, this movie is about th- three hours and five minutes long. It's one of the VHS era we used to call Two Taper, where you'd have to change VHS tapes in the middle <laughs> along. Uh-huh. And it falls into this ca- category of like, it's almost like uh, somebody's uh, nightmare of European cinema that it's three hours of um, peasant life in 19th century Italy. It, you know, there was, there was a p- parody of this kind of movie done in a, like a battery commercial once where they made fun of, they made up a movie called like, look at my potato, <laughs> or, you know, or it, what, what, uh, what Robert McKee would call a Polish light bulb movie or, you know, like, uh, or, you know, my wife wouldn't watch a movie with me once. I really tried to get her to watch it with me, and she said no on the grounds that the movie was called uh, uh, "Riding Alone for Thousands of Miles." <laughs> I was like, that's exactly like you don't want to go on that trip. So, uh, but I think I jumped at this movie. I actually hadn't seen it in a long time, so I think I had a very vivid mental picture of what the experience would be. I could have, you know, I really love movies like uh, "Days of Heaven." I, uh, Days of Heaven is a very accessible movie, um, but I also really was thinking about you know Bertolucci's 1900, mm. or um, you know even Hal Ashby's movie Bound for Glory. These are films that were shot in natural light. Uh, these are films that are um, period pieces that transport you to a simpler time, perhaps. Um, he, you know even um, even Heaven's Gate, you know the Michael Cimino film, which is also a broad, overlong epic. But so this is a film that um, it's, it's three hours in the life of it, three hour three hours covering sort of the better part of a year in the life of a number of families living in a farmstead like a, a house that holds four families who are all sort of tenant farmers who sort of work themselves to the bone. This is you know children, parents, and the elderly all to earn about 25% of what they make. And the landowner comes in and takes most of the money and lets them live there. Um, it's really the story of this place. And there's a number of stories of different families, whether it's, uh, you know, um, the elderly guy who gets up early to, you know, to fertilize his tomato plants with uh, chicken shit so that his will grow bigger and earlier and make a little extra money, but please don't tell anybody it's his only edge in the world, you know, to the uh, widow who has too many children uh, and might have to put them up for adoption just because you can't afford to raise them. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of little stories in there. And then really ultimately the story that gives the movie its title about a, it, the movie starts with a couple who feel almost put upon because their child is intelligent enough to go to school, which is just something that is a big pain because then he's not much of a worker. But in so doing, he's going to need some clogs and they breaks his clogs and the father cuts down a tree to make some clogs and the act of cutting down a tree. This is a guy who's a tenant farmer to build a clog, a set of clogs for his son ends up being his undoing. And so it really is about, um, uh, I've sort of told you a lot of the plot and the plot is really the least interesting aspect of it because what the movie does is transport you to a time and place that I I actually want to say that the reason I picked this kind of movie is because I wouldn't want to live there. But cinema is exactly the way to visit. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so um, what else can I tell you? Omi, uh, you know, was a, a child and grandson of peasants who knew old people like this. And so he was somebody whose grandparents had lived in this kind of world. And so he went to this region of Bergamo in Lombardy in Northern Italy and met a lot of people who lived there. And then in order to achieve the effect he wanted to make a story about people connected to the land, he found the people who lived there who remembered the stories of their grandparents. He interviewed them, worked it into the story. He got them. Every one of the movies, a non-actor. An incredible feat. Yeah. And they're really not acting. So they, he, he let them say the dialogue in their own way. He didn't show them the script, you know, which is what Alfonso Cuaron did with his film Roma where he just wanted to tell people on each day what was going to happen. And so he let people speak in their own way. You know, if you've seen these great uh, featurettes on the, you know, the Criterion disc, you know, he spent all this time looking for the appropriate kind of structure and then stumbled on an abandoned building <laughs> out in the countryside in the fog that ended up being the place that they could all live. Uh, you know, I'm not even a, you know, I don't really enjoy this kind of thing, but uh, as a as a non-mediator, I don't really enjoy watching animals being executed in movies. Mm -hmm. And there's a long butchering of a hog. Yes, there's two and, big animal death scenes. That are and then the sort of uh, astonishingly quick, unceremonious beheading of a goose, where you're like, okay, well, you know, that the, these things are uh, extraordinarily real. Oh, the people in the movie who are, are you know, brought tools and props from their family's history that they were brought into it. In every way, they tried to do something real. Anyway, I've spoken enough. You were not familiar with the film. It's a big ask. Hey, watch this three-hour-plus Italian film um, with a very low level of conflict. What did you think? Well, I mean, it's not a big deal for me. I'm very happy to watch the films that you suggest are film, films of interest in, in, in general. Um, oddly enough, I mean, my first, my first observation just in terms of our podcast was I could not understand something that seemed actually so relevant to the, the, the state we find ourselves in, oddly enough, and from my perspective, which is, you know, <laughs> we suddenly have the corporate right of America that's, that's driving people back to work, whether or not, you know, it, with no choice as though they were just, you know, indentured yeah. workers for nothing yeah. to get killed, which it doesn't care, or, or to get killed or get evicted, it actually was strikingly related to the situation that we find ourselves in right yeah, now. That's you know, it's a larger, <laughs> as a larger thing on his politics that came out. I, I was, but, but the movie is stunning. On, on a, on, just on a level of the lighting and the images, I mean, we're talking about a great pastoral work. I mean, it's loaded with kind of, a weird sort of return to romanticism, but in film. Uh, and it, it, it has a politics, but it's extremely rooted in, in you having a tremendous amount of feeling for just being completely timelessly invested in the basic rituals of life that are going on with, these, with this peasant family. And which I think is the, the emotion of it is drilled home because the portraits of children are so amazing that I, I 
this is what stunned me more than anything really is the portraits of the way that the children have to come up into this and 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 their tastes and the bend of fundamental ways that they see things that way but it's it, it's it's a beautiful movie to watch because you really are transported somewhere else it's it's doing that to you and i'm not really sure i mean in a way there's a soft slaughter that's going on that i that may be a, a bit of a cheap shot but you can overlook it because it's so well done. I mean, I don't really know. I don't, I don't think I've seen many movies that manage to achieve that kind of consistency of pacing. Yeah. That, I, I, I mean, it, it really rolls along in a way in which also the fact that you start to realize after a while that it doesn't really matter. Like, the, you know, there's a feeling of like, what, what's going to happen that you would have in some movies? What's going to happen with something? Where this is something that you realize it, it evaporates for you. It is happening. This is what's happening. Okay, and 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 I think that 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 is you know a, a really astonishing thing. Uh, it's just been it, a really amazing uh, and and really the performances. And you you can't really get around the fact that that not only did the guy write and direct this movie, but he shot it. Yeah. And that really blew me away. Just photographically, it's a huge accomplishment. Now, it is compared to 1900. I mean, 1900 is a huge photographic accomplishment. But it has one of the most lauded cinematographers in history sitting behind the camera, you know. And Yeah, this was a movie that was done on, clearly, you know, it was a big budget, but not nearly enough. And so it was really all, it's a very narrow view into history as opposed to a kind of broad epic. It really focuses very closely on a group of people and some very, you know, the world sort of comes to them. And you're right, only not only did he write and direct and was he the cinematographer and the editor, but yeah. he also operated, you know, he said he didn't want to have a lot of gear, you know, mm -hmm. that he didn't, uh, that he didn't want to have dolly tracks and tripods. He just wanted to carry the 35 millimeter camera around, which is, you know, much bigger than a 60 millimeter camera that you would generally operate. He came from a documentary background, so he would have shot a lot of films on 16, but he was going to sort of capture the nonfiction aspect. You can just tell that not just that he allowed the improvisation or dialogue, but that, you know, he didn't probably call action and cut. And he probably didn't slate a lot in a way that like made it feel like a movie. I should also mention that it's not in Italian. It's in Bergamesque, which I guess is the, the dialect of Bergamo, that area. Very regional. So, but you want to see, you wonder the most unusual thing about this film is that the dialogue was recorded on location. Because, you know, in Italy, there's a huge tradition of uh, post-dubbing all of the dialogue. Production dialogue, yeah. And so at first I thought, now that is a real trick. Because, you know, the biggest challenge of uh, recording location sound, which is, you know, de rigueur now, but the biggest challenge was always was that cinema equipment was so loud, it made it so difficult. You had to really quiet, you had to have a real quiet set to be able to record dialogue in sync. You know, that's why they yeah. do so much in studios. Um, so, so he actually wasn't recording the dialogue live. He shot for picture and then he called cut and then he had them run the scene for audio. Yeah, so dialogue was recorded on location and then dubbed in. So I thought that was the level of commitment, so that he could have you know the 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 room tone of that area, which is you know I guess there's this you know for decades the Italian film audiences didn't care much about that. That wasn't important to them. Whereas now we look at a film that's dubbed and it's just so flat. So I thought that was a real uh, commitment. 
Yeah, yeah. There was only one place I noticed it, which was oddly enough in the scene in the uh, in the in the uh, in the um, convent in in Milan, where there's one scene that's slightly out of uh, just one little piece of dialogue that's slightly out of time, and it's very funny. And I was like, that was surprising. It was the only time I saw saw a technical thing like that. Bother. None of that ever usually bothers me in film at all. I mean, so I, so, but I did notice it because otherwise it was fairly seamless, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I also I thought you know your, your idea that it should take us away from things was slightly flawed because also it's in bloody Lombardy which had like almost the highest death count in the world from coronavirus. And you know I was trying to figure out a way to mention that <laughs> not wait till the end because I don't want to end on that. But yes, it so happens that that region was actually the highest concentration of deaths from coronavirus in the world. Yeah. So I hadn't, I hadn't really meant that, but you think that like. Uh, you know, there's a kind of life is suffering vibe of all the people who have to endure, you know, the people in that world don't have a lot of choices. They don't have a lot of agency. You know, I, let me talk about your favorite scene in the movie. We haven't spoken about it, but I'm going to guess this is your favorite scene in the movie. Which one? The dude goes to the communist rally and finds the coin in the street. Well, that's an incredible scene. And then he, because he has to look around while they're talking about, what does the guy say? He says, the social order unfortunately always lags behind the fresh demands of life. Yeah. He's a coin and he's trying to step on so that nobody else will take it. But he takes the coin home and tries to smuggle it or just keep it secret in a horse's hoof. And then when it disappears, he blames the horse. Yeah. Yeah, and the horse has, and the scene with the horse getting, with him and the the violence with the horse is, is really quite, a shocker when you're watching it. Yeah, that's that's an incredible thing. But again, that's his sort of tangential politics. There, you're seeing he does it twice in the movie. I mean, you, you know where it's where three times really, if you consider the the run in with the yeah. with the owner. Um, and uh, you know, it's again, it's as though there is this. You know, you're dealing with people that are trying to incite people to times of revolution for the world that, that is against them and shouldn't be. There's a little bit of a smattering. It reminded me a little bit of, strangely enough, of, uh, you know, Duck You Sucker, which is one of my favorite movies ever also. But, the, you know, but just the, the, um, uh, uh, the, the Western, the Italian, the Italian Western, but uh, a fantastic movie. But it's about this sort of, you know. The, the irrelevance in a way or the uses of revolution by upper upper class people that really uh, either are not affecting or affecting negatively people that are uh, you know of, of, a, of, a, of, of a powerlessness of a power of an unpowered class you know um, but you just see these people and how their lives are affected really tangentially by all these different influences whether it's the clergy or whether it's you know, I don't want to say that it's some sort of allegory, but there is this, you know, capitalism sort of arrives by truck where the guy comes in and sells toys and dresses and things, but otherwise there's really not much for them to be spending money on, if anything. And then, you know, there's like a carnival and it all just sort of glances off of them. And then there's the, you know, the communists are trying to rile the workers. And then later the couple that sort of gets married and goes away, you know, they, that there's politics on the edges of it, but this isn't a story about, uh, this isn't a political story. You know? No, except it isn't, but except that, except not inherently. I, I don't, I, not by what the, not by what they're doing, but I don't think, I think his, I think his position, it's a political position, no matter what. I mean, you, 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 what you, it, and, and, 
luckily in every interview he basically admits that because he's a position about 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 peasants being the real people of the of the earth and what and what that means you know i mean his his only position on that which he doesn't try to hide and he doesn't try to suggest that his movie isn't trying to demonstrate the terrible loss of that and the, and the and loss of society and i think he's trying to point that out in every way uh what sort of um the value and something that would look ordinarily plain in life that that, that has been removed i uh but i i think that um Yeah, it is. It is. It is tangential, and those. I mean, it reminded me a lot of. I don't know how much you or the audience will have read Thomas Hardy's books, but there's a way in which it's very much like it goes goes on like a Thomas Hardy novel, in that there's small outside factors or small outside people that are disturbing the basic, uh, uh, undisturbed sort of. Uh, seasonal life of yeah yeah of no the, i've read my, my share of thomas already you're talking about this sort of pastoral existence yeah of like people sort of living these i don't want to say simple lives but that um uh you, you know um, what we would consider in retrospect the important historical factors are on the sidelines of the dramas of their own sort of existence yes and they're the things that undermine their existence there's these little disturbances all these little disturbances a little outsider something something from a position of sophistication somewhere something comes in like that and so there's a, there's now there's sort of an a little bit of this here where the disturbance is the coin that comes in or the fact that they have to sell tomatoes in town or the fact that, you know, it's always something that is slow. The, the pressure is slightly on from the outside. that's disturbing what their life would be. You know, the kid has to, yeah, absolutely. To the kid has to go to school because he's got potential. That's like, yeah. Oh crap. I found a coin. Now what am I going to do? I got to hide it. You know, right. <laughs> this immense sort of responsibility. Yeah. I, I, I really did. Uh, I really did love it. I wonder, you know, I was thinking about why, you know, I guess, you, you know, everybody loves the deer hunter. And one of the things about that movie is that wedding scene that goes on for like a half yeah. hour, 45 minutes. Yeah. And you can't believe that they're still there. And you're like, we're not going to go to the next thing. Like, we're just going to like be in this for a while. That is, you know, really liberating and i think that like days of heaven in 1900 is the exact vibe of this entire picture yeah. and i think it was almost a, after i chose it i was like well i guess i'm going to watch tree of wooden clogs again and i think i was really living on my memory i think like reading a thomas hardy novel uh -huh. maybe you're not going to reread again in your life do you want to go back and see whether it's changed or whether you have but um i guess i wanted to say something about why I didn't think to pick Catwoman, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, because part of me is like, you know, Manola Dargis, the New York Times did a did a piece about, you know, like I feel like Fred Astaire movies or Singing in the Rain or like we could have picked Forty Second Street. Like, there's so much that's like, like, like we didn't say fun, <laughs> even though yeah. I found this movie to be great. And I think, you know. Um, when people go on vacation some people want to go on a cruise some people want to go somewhere familiar some people want to go and be luxuriated 
Some people want to go and have all of their problems handled for them when they go on the trip. Uh-huh. They just say one thing and all the stuff is taken care of. And then other people, probably like me, are like, oh, I get to go on a trip. What's the longest trip I can go on? How far away can I go? How far can I get? How will, will I not bump into anybody there? Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> how different will it be? And I think I will jump at that. And I think also it's not, you know, like a lot of people I'm having a hard time. I watch fewer movies in, uh, in isolation than I did before because I think it was easier for me to manipulate that, that Tetris of your life. to Hold on. To Whereas I thought, oh, I have to, uh, I'm going to have to watch a movie. Started Tetris of your life again. The, the, the recording went completely out. There. Okay. Well, I was just going to say that uh, I, there must have been something at some level that said, you know, I, I'm movies than I used to. It, it, I'm actually watching fewer movies in isolation than I did before because it's a little bit harder to handle the Tetris of your life when you have fewer things that you can do to create time. So I think I was like, if I'm going to, if I have to, if I get to watch a movie for a podcast for homework, let me pick the longest one. (laughs) Um, But I do think um, this is my challenge for us for next time. I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed both of these movies. My challenge for next time is that we each pick a movie that's under 80 minutes long. Okay. I love that. That's my only challenge because what it means is I, I can watch them both at the same time. Both of them will fit in less time than it took to watch the Tree of Wooden Clogs once. I, I even know the movie I'm going to pull in too, and uh, and we'll see we'll see how you like it. It's going to be it's a very it's a, very, it's a totally totally not totally outside of our thing. I did want to fit in a couple of other funny things things here quickly before we before we go to the the outro, which is um, about the music, the, yep. use, the use of only use of Johann Sebastian Bach's music in, in the film, yeah. and, and this was something that actually in this film I really I really liked. For, for the reason that it wasn't, it's not specifically a trope in movies to have box music or have a composer's music just be the whole thing. But in this case, I liked it. Because I liked it very much. It, the music meant more to me than the, the other movie in as much as the box music is, you know, he's from, he was from an underclass person. He was from an underclass family that had to work for extremely privileged people in courtly life for his, to make a living for his, for his whole life. And so I thought there was a good match there with that. And and I did also want to just make sure that the people, the connection with the realist thing with having actors that aren't aren't professional, oddly enough, is a comment that uh, uh, Catherine Breyat always makes about uh, Maurice Pielat being the greatest French director because of exactly that. He doesn't, he uses all these non-acting professionals I we haven't gotten to the Maurice Pielat thing but we will at some point but I thought it was kind of interesting that there was some relationship in aesthetics be- between the directors uh, in a tangential way that I thought was interesting whether the, even her thing with Pasolini and that too you know well, what's the quote you know Olmi has this quote about uh, you know when he wanted to make a film about peasants he cast people from the peasant world he said I don't use a fig to make a pear very good line. Yeah, that was. <laughs> I, I won't even go into it. If, if you should, everyone should look at. It, I will put this shout out to the, to the two most famous film discussers in the world. Uh, it, but Ebert wrote pieces about both these films that are very very funny. I, now you know I looked it up <laughs> like Wooden Clogs, or he thought it was really 
he thought people were virtue signaling, which is not yeah. a that, that we just had to sort of take our hats off and uh, kneel before peasant life. But he, he, hold on, you went out again. Let me see if we get you in. Very articulate view, get it. But I do feel like, um, you know, the movie just didn't work on him. <laughs> if that was his experience of it. But what is mistress? What's what? What did he say about Last Mistress? Oh, he really loved Last it. Mistress, oddly enough. That, so yeah, that, this is what I thought was weird. I thought it was weird that the only movie only got three stars and Last Mistress got five stars. And I thought this No, was no, no. If you said there's a film that gave the only movie three stars and Last Mistress five stars, I'd say Roger Ebert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's exactly who that is. <laughs> it was funny. You know, I, I thought it was funny. But, you know, you know, it's not like he said bad things. But I think he, I think for, for, it, he gave what, what – what, what, the sort of American version of, of an anger at formalism in art, like sort of Soviet kind of thing, which is so odd from him because, you know, he's such a sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of, yeah, I I think he was great, you know, and everything, but, you know, his, his positions are can be really, really funny or ironic. Well, he would have been more likely to choose Last Mistress for our podcast than Tree of a Wooden Clock. You know what I mean? He's That's probably right. more likely than the type of person. I mean, even now he's gone like Pauline Kale, their taste remains alive, and you could pretty much predict what they would think about the movies coming out now based on you know, their taste profile of everything else. But I think he, in a time like this, would probably go for, um, you know, the comforts of the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he did have that sort of, you know, this, this, the, you know, the soft side of him would, would have been like that. Or, or, or else he was looking for a kind of completely, you know, uh, uh, you know, Russ Meyer type uh, type weirdness that that you know that he also went for in a kind of in a, in a, in a way. I mean, so. Yeah, you're speaking, <laughs> you're speaking of his employer. So yeah, <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> um, but I, as a final recommendation, you know, it turns out I didn't know this. The Tree of Wooden Clogs. Here's a few fun facts I found at the end. It's on the uh, it's on the list of the greatest films of all time put out by the Vatican. Wow. So you know that's, that's interesting. Uh, I'm kind of that was to drop that list because I'm a big listicle person. Um, and then also it was a, uh, an inspiration for a really great film I almost would have picked for a podcast at some point. There's a great Italian film called La Quattro Volte, which is about the, which is an odd sort of documentary I'd recommend to you that really is about, uh, darn it, I don't want to say anything more, but I, I was really surprised to see that there was a, sort of noted connection between a really astonishing film called La Quattro Volte. And the last thing I'll say is that there's an amazing video clip uh, in which um, Al Pacino says that this is his favorite movie of all times. Right, yes. Where he says, you know, I got a lot of movies, but he had to mention Tree of Wood and Clocks. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, a lot of people can say Citizen Kane or Singing in the Rain or 2001, but the movie that you like that is really specific to you you think like okay you see why that's uh, you see why that's the case uh-huh yeah yeah i'm really i'm really glad you liked it man i uh, I, I, I know you can handle these kind of masterpieces uh, um, yeah I, I do love them and uh and so this is i'll tell you what we, we'll say we'll, we'll say goodbye to the crew the, the crowd here and the crew of whoever's listening uh instantly you can get you can watch uh last mistress on uh that's on amazon the other one's on criterion 